Hello and welcome to Stoppage Time, the brand new football podcast from Surrey FA, powered by Capital Content. In today's episode, we're joined by the founder of Team Grassroots Football, Paul Curtin. Uh, Paul created Team Grassroots Football in 2014, and the business has been growing ever since. Team Grassroots Football are the voice of grassroots football in the UK. They proudly represent the grassroots community and offer support and resources on behalf of millions of people that play or support the game. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Marcus. That was a very, very nice introduction you've just given us there as well. <laughs> no, so you've done, done loads of grassroots football and it's great to have you on. Um, first of all, more about you. How did you um, start your journey in grassroots football? My journey started uh, a long time ago. Um, I mean, I'm 42 years of age now. I was a, a junior player myself up in uh, the Sunderland area, the Russell Foster League. Um, I was then, I didn't want to stop playing so I became an adult player. I then um, found a love of coaching and I've coached ever since. So I think grassroots football has, has been a permanent feature in my life. It kind of never went away. I just retained that love. Um, and when I couldn't play as a junior, I played as an adult. And then when I wasn't as fit as everybody around us, I started to think, well, coaching might be my better option. So I found a real love affair with um, with grassroots coaching. And uh, here I am today, still involved in grassroots football. And I I can't see that changing, to be fair. Um, I've just always been involved. I can't imagine, in fairness, it's not, I think it's a way of life. Grassroots football to me, it's a way of life. It's not It's not a job, it's not a hobby. It's, it is literally a way of life and it, it can consume you, whether you're playing, coaching, it can consume you um, and it certainly consumes my daily life. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> There's no start of my day and end of my day. It's, I'm, um, I'm involved from the minute I open my eyes to the minute I close my eyes, there's always something going on. I think there's so many people that can say the exact same for you. I know there's a lot of people in the office, and they're sorry if they'd be the exact same. And I think it just shows from what you said there that how much you can do in grassroots football, um, which is just fantastic and how much it can take up. Obviously, it can take up a lot of time, but it's fantastic that it can take up, that it can really, you know, boost everyone's morale and um, be a great thing for people. Secondly, so what made you want to set up cross, Team Grassroots Football in 2014? Well, that, I mean, that's, an, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll only be as honest as I can be. Um, many, many years ago when I was coaching, it, it started with one question. Somebody said, why don't... I had a, I think I had an under sevens team at the time. And somebody says, why don't you take the, um, the team on a sponsored walk with the view of... I can't even remember what it was for now. I'm getting some strips. So it was raising some money for something. I went, yeah, what a great idea. And that's something that every team in the land at some point has probably done. I says, have you got a spare application? Sorry, a spare sponsor form? And no, I haven't got a sponsor form. So I then rang the league. The league said, no, we haven't got a sponsor form. So I then asked the club secretary, do you have a sponsor form? They said, no. I then asked the county FA and they said, no, we don't have a spare sponsor form. And I couldn't find a sponsor form anywhere. And this sounds really silly, but I thought surely people must use sponsor forms every single day of the week. So I created a very um, primitive sponsor form so we could start. And then um, somebody else asked us, can I use it, etc. So I thought, well, I might as well professionalize this a little bit. So I started making sponsor forms. Um, and then every time I hit a hurdle and somebody um, couldn't provide it, instead of saying, well, somebody should do something about this, I became that somebody who would do something about it. And I then set up a regional forum in the Northeast. Um, and very quickly, we had 2,000 coaches on there, then 4,000, then 10,000. And parents started to interact. And then uh, we rolled out nationally. 
I tried everywhere for funding. I tried the FA, I tried Sport England, and everybody told me at that point there's um, no desire or appetite or need for an independent grassroots football organisation. Last week, we had 28 million hits. On an average, we, we get five to six million hits. Um, so I would probably argue against what we were told in the first instance, because if I had accepted that, um, what we've created now just wouldn't exist. And what started with, you know, nothing, then became a whisper, became chatter, then became a, you know, a real army with a real voice now of the grassroots community. So I'm really pleased that we ignored all the people who told us, no, you don't really, we don't really need that. Um, because clearly the people did need that. Um, the people were crying out for an independent voice who would represent them. Um, and when I say represent them, it's, you know, I'm a coach myself. I'm a level one coach myself. I know the issues. I know the hardships. Um, I get it. And I think that's the one thing that what we've surrounded ourselves with is people who really get grassroots football. And I think that shows in the content that we put out. That shows in the material, educational-wise. Um, that shows in our respect campaign. That shows in... That threads through every single thing that we do, we get it. We really, really get it, you know. And the minute that we try to work with somebody, whether it's um, an external organisation, company, sponsor, etc., if they don't get grassroots football and they don't want to work for the benefit of grassroots football, we're not interested. Irrespective of how much money or how much sway, we've always been strong with that because we want that voice. We're proud of that voice, and I think when you've got that voice. And you've got that responsibility. It's really important that you use that um, for the right reasons. Um, we very, very rarely criticise anybody. We'll point out where we think things are wrong, but we'll also offer a solution, etc. So we'll never disrespect anybody, organisations, um, or you know, key stakeholders. And I think that's got us to the point now where key stakeholders in the game, like the FA. Um, like kick it out, like show racing the red card, all work with us now. Uh, we work extensively with the FA. We work extensively with kick it out, show racing the red card, um, the Football Supporters Association. Um, you you name a key stakeholder, we're probably working with them in some form of capacity, which is really interesting when you think it wasn't that long ago. Uh, we were told time and time and time again, doors slammed in our face. There's absolutely no need for an independent grassroots football organisation. Now, it's great for us to sit here and, and think, well, we're really, really pleased that the grassroots community really believed in us because without the grassroots community, we, wouldn't, we would be nothing. Um, and with that support, we've created what, what we've got today. That's yeah, it's a really interesting answer. <laughs> it's a really interesting point you say because obviously that that when in 2014 you had the struggles but it's great to see that you've been able to push through that and really with the love of the grassroots community and the help and the, the help that you see um in terms of obviously during lockdown it's been very different for you and you've had to adapt in terms of what you what you send out to audiences and how you how you interact with the grassroots community but you can just know a little bit about how you've done that because obviously you, it's been tough to go out and actually go and see clubs um, so how have you adapted and been able to still interact with clubs and also leagues and uh, everyone in the community? Lockdown was a significant challenge. I'm not going to, I think that's been a significant challenge for everybody. And I think um, one of the things, one of the ways that we adapted, when lots of people um, stepped back, we stepped up. Because one of the things, and this was our mantra, we wanted to keep football alive. Um, so the content that we created was a little bit different. We thought, you know, where, where can we help people? So can we provide 
you know, one-to-one -one coaching in somebody's garden. So can we provide activities, session plans, where you can still stay active, you can stay safe, but you can keep the football alive. Um, one of the things that we did over the lockdown period was we launched what potentially, although I can't scientifically say this for a fact, could have been the, the, the single biggest, pardon me, grassroots football campaign of all time. So we started a campaign called Hearts for Heroes. And all we wanted to do was uh, send our hearts to the you know, the NHS and the key workers who were keeping us all safe, who were going out to work when everybody else was in lockdown. And all we asked people to do was get your kits on uh, and send a picture, a Gareth Bale-esque hard picture with your strip on um, and try and get your whole team involved. And the, the participation rate um, was so significant. Um, I've never seen the volume. I mean, we always deal with big volumes. I've never ever in my... Um, all my time running grassroots, I've never seen the take-up of a campaign like it. Um, it went viral around the country. It went viral around... Uh, we were getting pictures in from everybody, and they were so creative, because if you think about it, some of these teams were all in different houses, so a coach or somebody from that team had to ask players, can you go and get a um, picture with your strip on in the garden and take a picture uh, with a heart? And then they were getting sent to one person who was putting them in some of the most creative images I've ever seen, you know, it was absolutely sensational, some of the stuff that was getting through. And we tried, I mean, we, I think we put about three and a half thousand pictures on over lockdown of the Hearts for Heroes. And that was probably the tenth of everything that came through. So that can give you an indication of how many teams participated. We, we physically couldn't get them all on. So I think by reaching out, and I mean, the, the grassroots community is 11 million strong. 11 million people every single weekend are involved in grassroots football because they love it, not because they're getting paid. They're, paying for the, they're playing for the smile, not for because of a pound. And I think that, that love affair with grassroots football, it doesn't just start with the player um, and end with the player. I think it starts with the player and then it, it threads through the coach, it threads through the parents because it threads through the spectators, the officials. Everything around it creates the biggest army, of the biggest volunteer army um, in the country, 11 million people. That's a huge amount of people every single weekend are involved in our game each week. Now, those people, all of a sudden from nowhere, had it stopped. So I think we had to reach out because people's mental health was affected, people's physical health was affected. So we thought, how can we, how can we have a positive impact on both of those? Um, so the, the campaign that we did, we also did a, an at-home training campaign which we got somewhere in the region of four and a half thousand videos sent in and that was just people in the garden uh, training ironically ironically what we wanted to do we couldn't in the end um, and it's uh, i wish we could have said this and i wish we could have done this we wanted to we actually contacted the guinness book of records because we wanted to do uh, the single biggest um session of all time so what we wanted to do was have everybody uh, dialed in uh, in their gardens, for example, just doing some kick-ups, something very, very basic. Unfortunately, the Guinness Book of Records turnaround time for us to do that meant that we were then subsequently out of lockdown by the time we got that authorization through. So it was a little bit of a shame because if we had done it, we would have brought the world record, but we would never have been able to say that we had brought the world record, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So getting back to how we reached out, we just reached out in a different way. I mean, one of the things that we did, and this was absolutely crazy because we never, ever thought we would ever do something like this. Um, we went from, 
you know, being at the sidelines interviewing people about the respect program and the, what their views were on sin bins to create colouring books um, for junior players so they could, you know, colour in their, their badges or their strips or create trophies and we did quizzes. So we turned into an educational facility, um, not on purpose, but we we had to adapt. And I think the, the key the key message from us is when everybody stepped back, we stepped up. We stepped up the plate because what we wanted to do was keep people safe, keep people active, but more importantly, keep football alive uh, because that was really important. Because one of the key surveys that we did, because we did this three times during uh, lockdown, was what do you think the, the biggest issue is when we come back? And ironically, obviously the COVID um, issues and the COVID precautions and hygiene, etc., that was always going to be a factor. But the second biggest factor on every survey we did, which was really worrying, was getting the kids interested again, getting the coaches interested again, because um, there was a real fear that um, people were being thrust into other activities, for example, um, consoles. Um, and it was a real, it was, it was, it was a genuine fear. And that's what lots of coaches, certainly at the older ages, 14s, 15s, 16s, where we see large dropouts anyways, that was a that was becoming their number one concern. So I'm really pleased um, when the Grassroots Restart project began that we could start getting people out the training, even if it was in smaller groups. And I think that was a real that was a real key lift for everybody's mental health. I'm sure you would agree with that, Marcus. Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, even when I got back to football and went back to the first time to play five aside, it, it it lifts your mood, it boosts your mood, and it's um it's a great way of 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 just getting out and playing and having fun with some friends. Um, and I'm sure everyone will feel the exact same way. It's interesting. Will you continue doing the color coloring books? Do you think? Well, ironically, now that now the materials made, I mean, during lockdown, believe it or not, we had thirty six thousand downloads of our coloring book, which is a, a monumental amount of downloads. Mm. Um, but they were clearly well used. We created, I mean, we created so so many material, for, so much material for people to do. We'll probably now that we've got that, instead of archiving it or deleting it, we'll probably create some type of fun section on our website where you can just go and you can get these things because we've put the work in to do them. So and people use them. So clearly there was a, there was a need there, you know. So we're not going to get rid of them because uh, we went all that time and effort to make them and clearly they were well used so I th yeah i think we'll keep them i think it, will, it would be sensible yeah as you, as you say i think every company's had to adapt and we're all doing new things and different things and um what if we've put the work in why don't what, what's why don't why shouldn't we why shouldn't we keep it and why shouldn't we keep it going and if it as you say so many hits and so many downloads i'm sure it's going to be still a hit um after lockdown um so moving on to social media Obviously, on um, on the grassroots Twitter page, you got over five, fifty five thousand um, followers, which is massive and amazing um, to see. How did you actually start to gain that such a huge audience? Uh, well, it was you know, we started. We didn't start on Twitter. We actually started on Facebook, and we started regionally in the northeast. Um, and it was very very much taking you back to when I started making sponsor forms and regi registers, etc. Um, we started a forum in the in the northeast, which had two thousand, then four thousand, six thousand, etc. It was obvious when we got to about seven or eight thousand people on the grassroots football northeast Facebook forum that there was a desire there, there was a need, there was a hunger, and there was a huge vacuum in um, the grassroots world for something like us. 
So at that point, we started Twitter and then we started the Grassroots Football UK Facebook page. Um, our biggest platform is by a long way is Facebook. Um, we average around about three and a half million hits a week on Facebook. On Twitter, we average around about one and a half million a week impressions. So, but we start, we didn't have, nobody would give us any funding. So we couldn't start a huge campaign. Nobody would, um, we, nobody would help us. Nobody would even work with us when we first started. Quite the opposite. Lots of people tried to close doors in our face and say, well, there's no need for this. This is an unnecessary thing. Um, so we started organically, but it was very credible because it literally was a, a grassroots organized. It was grassroots people helping grassroots people. And I think that credibility was what, really caught on and people believed in it and thought these guys are really trying to do something positive they're not trying to make a quick book they're really trying uh, in fact grassroots for the first five years um cost us money uh, cost us a significant amount of money um because when we wanted to do something we had day jobs i was a police officer there was lots of other people involved so we put the money in ourselves and said well yeah if we need a website let's just buy a website let's make a web website if we need um, some cameras or some equipment, well, let's just do it. Let's use the money Let's because clearly the need's there. And we re didn't really have, if I'm honest, we didn't really have a goal. We didn't really have any strategy. And I think lots of people say now that we were marketing geniuses because of what we did. Actually, we didn't. Uh, we, didn't have, we, we didn't have any um, goal. We didn't have any roadmap, et cetera. We just did what we thought was right. Um, and when people ask for help, we're helped. Um, for, for, I'll, give, I'll, I'll give you a classic example, because lots of people will say, well, what types of things have you done? I mean, we've had many, many national campaigns now. We had the uh, Hard for Rear campaign. We had One Last Smile for Kasabian campaign. We had the Justice for 96 campaign. We have the Grassroots Remembers campaign uh, with the poppies on Grassroots Kits every year. But one of the most, um, one of the things that, that we've done that, I was so proud of is that we were contacted by somebody who said, um, I've got a child who's got some deformities with his hands and he's my goalkeeper. I've tried Nike. I've tried Adidas. I've tried all the major brands. Is there any way you can do them some, some gloves? So we contacted uh, a factory that we use over in Pakistan and said, um, we know there's a child here. Um, he's got some deformities on his hands. Um, he only had three fingers. They've tried everywhere to get some gloves. Can you do it? So we said, yeah, we'll do it. And we paid an absolute fortune to get these gloves made um, for this young child because that child, why shouldn't he have a pair of gloves? And yeah. when, we, when we give this, I mean, we did this and we did this, um, not for publicity, we did this because it was the right thing to do because they've reached out for help and nobody would help them. And I think that's when... That's when a, an organisation like us who can't help, we'll say, well, yeah, we will help because, it's again, it's the right thing to do. And I think you, if you're an organisation and you've got the power to, to help, then you're obliged to help and you need to do what's right. Even when nobody's looking, that's, in fact, it's more important to do what's right when people aren't looking as opposed to when you're on BBC or Sky Sports, etc. When nobody's looking, that's the time to do the right thing, you know. Um, and we were really, really proud of that. And, and, and another thing that we did is we uh, we started selling defibrillators. And not, not many people know there's the backstory here. 
Um, we started selling defibrillators because too many organizations were turning defibrillators into a cash cow and they were, you know, putting a huge model on them. So we actually created a video. We bought some defibrillators and we said we're going to put them out at cost. And we said we actually created a video and challenged the entire defibrillator market, little us, little grassroots, and said, um, this is what we're doing. A defibrillator is not a cash cow. Categorically, it's not a cash cow. It's a life-saving piece of equipment. And if you're making huge markups on uh, defibrillators, start panicking now um, because we're going to start supplying them, but we're going to start supplying them at cost price. Um, and it, what, it, what, it, what it did was it, it sent down the pricing on defibrillators. And that was just little us, but little us who had at the time a voice of one million people. So the, the, the more people that you have involved, the more people you have engaged, the more people that you service, it, the strength of that voice becomes so much um, stronger uh, to the point now where we can, you know, we can we can facilitate things like that now a little bit more because we've got the we've got the power of those numbers behind us, and that really that really helps the grassroots community because if they want a life saving piece of equipment and they don't want to pay um, somebody who's making a huge profit, then we can do that. Um, because one of our key, well, our our key ethos is to make grassroots football a better place for everybody and create value where we can. And I think that really falls into that creating value where we can, because we had the capacity to do it, we had the balls to do it, and we did it. And I think sometimes that's the one thing that's missing, just taking that last leap of faith, because that could have that could have went really really wrong, you know. But we we thought it was again, we thought it was the right thing to do, so. We work, we work, we wear our hearts on our sleeves when we're doing something. And if it's a, if it's beneficial to grassroots football, we'll certainly try. We're not always successful, but we'll certainly try. You know. Yeah, no, just, you say you should be very proud of of, of what of what you've done because it's um, in, I think having grassroots footballers, you guys as, as that you know leading grassroots community, and you are the community really, and that leading organisation for them. I think it's great to have you guys there because there's if people can't if people don't help then you're there to help as well. So I think um and that's fantastic what you what you've been able to do. Really interesting. You go back to sports organisations, and obviously leading ones like the FA, kick it out, um, organisations you work with now. When did they come to? Did they come to you, or did you have to go to them again later on in the, when when you got a bit more of a platform? Um and also when did that happen? When did they start coming to you, or you go to them again? Um, I think from the National FA's perspective, we've always had a good relationship with the FA. I think um, we had been, I'm, go I'm going to be honest at this point, Marcus, I can't remember the exact dates or, or years, but um, I think we were getting lots of, I think we were getting, gaining lots of traction and fans at the FA because of what we were doing, because I think anybody who looks at any of our content would agree that it's very, very um it's it's in the right tone every time, um, and we were I think we were getting a lot of um, warmth from the FA and thinking actually these guys are doing a really good job, really positive what they're doing. Um, so we started working extensively with the FA probably around about two years ago, but even two or three years before that, I think there was conversations going on between um, myself and, and lots of people at the FA on, on different different concepts, different projects, etc. But um, the FA have been great to work with. To be fair, I can't, I can't criticise the FA. I know the FA do get heavily criticised externally, 
Um, I think a lot of it sometimes is possibly um, misaimed, and I think it's sometimes unfair. The one thing we do say is when we disagree, we, we do say that, we'll say that publicly, um, but we'll always say we disagree because. Because I think it's easy sometimes. Um, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. I was on a, a radio show with, I can't remember, um, somebody from the FA and um, I think it was Chris Waddle as well. And um, Chris was giving the guy from the FA quite hard time about uh, pitches, saying that uh, the pitches are in really bad um, nick um, and the FA should do more, etc. And I, I had to step in and say, well, over 90% of the pitches in, the, in, in England are local authority pitches that the FA don't have jurisdiction over. So the reason that it went down is because lots of local authorities financially had to take a hit. Um, so what they did was they went from two weekly cutting cycles to three three weekly cutting cycles. That had a major impact on the quality of pitches. So I think it's unfair to potentially like label the FA to blame for that. Um, and it's not my job to, to, to defend the FA, but it, it is my job to do the right thing, even when nobody's looking. So and that's a prime example where I thought, well, that's probably unfair. So we'll deliver the information and say, well, actually, can we lobby the local authority? Can we go back from three weeks to two weeks? Because... That's when you make real change, not when you just point the finger and say, well, you're doing a bad job, you're doing a bad job, you're doing a bad job. Okay, well, let's find the root of the issue. We went from two weekly cycles to three weekly cycles. Can we utilise asset transfer schemes locally or can we ask, can we, um, ask the, can we put pressure on the, uh, the local authorities to go back to the two weekly cycles? And I think that, that's, that, that's the type of things where I think if you can work together as opposed to against people, then you can get something for the common good, you know? Um, but with reference to show racing the red card, um, again, show racing the red card, probably the last three years, we've worked more and more with them. We helped them extensively on the um, Wear Red Day. And now they've asked me, well, I, I'm saying that they've asked, I'm now the national grassroots patron for show racing the red card. We've worked extensively with the new chairman of Kick It Out, Sanjay. Um, we've worked historically with Kick It Out quite a lot. And the Football Supporters Association, we've got lots of involvement with them, specifically the um, Fans for Diversity, which I'm on the National Guidance Group for. Actually, funny enough, I was I did a project in your area uh, not so long ago with the Fans for Diversity. Are you aware of that project? Not not originally, but um, no, so I know they do obviously do a lot of work nationally. Um, and yeah, so it'd be great to hear a little bit more about that. So um, I found a group of ladies um, of South Asian heritage between the ages of 60 and 94. And they were all um, based out of a community centre that's basically in the shadow of AFC Wimbledon's ground. So I had a crazy idea with a guy called Anwar Udin and a female called Amira Rahman, uh, who are based in your area. And I said, I want to come meet them, tell them about football. And I want to do a walking football session. And Anwar said, yeah, I love that idea. It's brilliant. I also want to take them to a game. So together, the three of us worked on a project uh, where we got them all together. We went down and we, 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 did, a, we did a Q&A session, firstly. And I asked them all, you know, why, why is football not part of your life? And it was really interesting, the responses that we got, because the responses that we got probably weren't what people were expecting. Firstly, um, the stereotypes were thrown out the window because everything you thought they were going to be, they weren't, because they were, they were cheeky, 
they were funny, um, they were engaged, um, they were a brilliant, brilliant group. And lots of people said that, lots of the females in the room said that they didn't feel that football wanted them and they didn't feel that they've ever had the opportunity and there was a little bit of fear there. So what we offered was to give them that opportunity and to remove that fear. And if we could remove that fear and provide the opportunity, would they participate? Would they do some water football? Would they go to a game? And the answer to that was a resounding absolutely. So that's exactly what we did. We did some water football with them down at the community centre. And then subsequently they went to a game for AFC Wimbledon, I believe. Yeah, it was AFC Wimbledon. And we're still in touch with that group with plans to potentially take them to a Fulham game now um, and maybe do some work at the Fulham training ground, etc. And I think not many people would have thought about doing that project and reaching out to those communities. Um, but that's exactly the type of things that I think we have to be doing in, in this day and age, reaching out to hard to reach communities and saying, football's for everybody. It's not for one demographic. It's for every demographic. And no matter how old you are or what you look like or what your sexuality is, football is for you. Um, and how can I how can I or how can we invite you in or, you know, make you feel welcome? And I think that's really, really important now more than ever. That's important, Marcus. Definitely. It's really, it's so powerful. There's so many projects going on, especially around here that that, have, that we've been able to get involved in with, um, with other, um, with groups and communities that don't necessarily have football, but have the opportunity and we've been able to give that to them. Um, and it's fantastic to see, as you say, it's, it's for everyone. It's for all. Um, and it won't ever stop being for everyone. Um, so I think that's that's really important. And Paul, thank you. So that is that's that's all, all for now. And thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been fantastic to hear about the journey of grassroots team grassroots football, your journey, and how you've been able to help um, in terms both up in the northeast, but also na- nationally. It's been fantastic to to hear and see and about all, about, about all of that. Um, and thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to another one of our Stoppage Time podcasts. To keep up to date with everything going on at Surrey FA, why not follow us on social media? You'll find us at Surrey FA on Twitter and Facebook, at Surrey County FA on Instagram, and Surrey FA TV on YouTube. Take care, and we'll be back soon with another Surrey FA Stoppage Time podcast.